This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Hiking Toward Heaven, an uplifting story of hope on earth with hints of heaven. And the author is Ian Palmer, and Ian joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ian. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us, and this is going to be a hike. You're going to take us on a journey toward heaven in a very unique way. Let me read a few things that you have written about your book just to set the stage. You say this, Hiking Toward Heaven is a spiritual book which probes the mystery of faith and the great Christian themes of grace, love, and forgiveness. The faith of children versus adults is contrasted in a compelling reexamination of the benefits of openness and simplicity. And the spiritual truths emerge during six hikes, which are dramatic and suspenseful, starting with a kidnapping. Well, that's got a little twist to it, a little drama. I guess there's a mysterious traveler, a hiker, that joins you, correct? Yes, yes, yes. We were uh, we were walking around the Araya near my house in Albuquerque, and uh, my uh, grandchild, Kara, was kidnapped. And uh, that, um, wow, that, that was true. a huge challenge. This is true. This is, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question, because uh, <laughs> the most common comment I get about uh, the incidents in the book is, I can't tell whether this is true or not. The book, <laughs> no, book okay. is a fiction book, but okay. it's based on a lot of truth. All right. Well, tell us why you chose to write it in this way. I, I've always uh, been a hiker. I've hiked uh, since I was eight years old, and I love to hike, particularly in the Southwest, uh, the, the, the states of the Southwest. I live in New Mexico. And I was hiking with a friend uh, in Utah one day, and I said, I'd like to write a book. I, I, I write a lot in my profession as a petroleum engineer. And he said, why don't you write a book about hiking? Because uh, you, you've hiked all over. And, I, and that, uh, that clicked. And uh, at the same time, I've, uh, I've always been uh, a Christian for a long time and always been interested in the mystery of faith, um, how we understand faith. And, uh, and, and I thought, gosh, maybe I could link the two together. Maybe I can um, find some way. And uh, that was my goal, and I found it through a mysterious stranger that, uh, that uh, we met during the kidnapping. And she could uh, she 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 asked questions and um, and uh, initiated discussion in 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 a series of six hikes that we took with her. So uh, myself, the scientist, uh, the grandkids, and the mysterious stranger embarked on six different hikes across the southwest through the mountains and the canyons, and uh, we we got into spiritual things and uh, some of the great. Christian hallmarks of uh, forgiveness and love and grace, and that's kind of how it happened. And you also want it to be not in a preachy way. Yes, I deliberately set about not to do that. The way I have tried not to be preachy is to, um, to have this triangle of the scientist, the grandchildren, and the mysterious stranger. 
And um, uh, that worked rather well because uh, at one end of the spectrum, uh, the grandkids who are 8 and 12 years old were um, asking uh, questions along spiritual lines, you know, what is grace, for example. And, and as a scientist, um, I, I uh, you know, have, have opinions that have, have been formed through years of experience, um, and uh, so I could make comments but also ask questions. And then, uh, then there's the, the, the stranger who, um, who uh, brings in attributes of heaven and talks about, uh, gives a different perspective uh, on, on these things. And so the triangle uh, was the way that, uh, that, that we, we have the discussion going on, you know, on, on the mystery of faith without being preachy. Well, you want to emphasize this themes of grace and love and forgiveness, and at the same time you're using not only this mysterious stranger, but you're also using what you call mysterious events and situations during these six hikes. Yes, every every hike um, uh, ha- contains a drama of some kind, and most of these were real. Most of these came about uh, actually through, through actual hikes that I have taken, and so I was able to work them into the story, but I was able to relate them to... Um, to spiritual things. For example, in one hike down the La Luz Trail, uh, uh, in, in right next to Albuquerque, it's a very long trail downhill, and uh, one of the uh, hiking members uh, damaged her knees on the way down. And um, um, that, uh, that, that was quite a challenge. It was, it was really pretty scary to get, to get her down to the bottom. That, uh, that uh, through this, Michelle, who's the mysterious stranger, introduced the topic of persistence, which I, I think is a spiritual, um, um, a spiritual, spiritual attribute, and um, um, and and so we have this uh, conversation about persistence and resilience, you know, and and um, and their role in a, in a, in, a, in people's lives, in, in Christian lives. Now, you talk about your book is rich in allegory, and it also seems to be tied, uh, at least according to one reader, looked at this book and said, wow, this could really help youth in detention. Yes, um, that comment was made by a man who does... um um, um, in, in, uh, he actually ministers to youth in detention. He's, he's, a, he's a pastor, but uh, he goes in there to, uh, to help the youth, to, to mentor the youth, and to help them to be better prepared for life when they leave. And, um, and his, after he read the book, his comment was that this could, uh, this, this could be really... Uh, this could really appeal to these youth because it's a novel presentation of some of the, the truths in the gospel. And uh, he has established, uh, he's been very successful in uh, helping these at-risk youth. And so he, he plans to um, integrate the book, to study the book with, with, the, with, with the youth there in detention. And he feels like that will really help them. So in, uh, I, I think that that's a comment on the... Um, the, the book is, is both uh, inspirational and practical, and uh, I've always tried to be that. I've taught Sunday school lots of times in churches, and I think uh, that combination of being inspirational and practical is a, very, is a very strong combination, very valuable combination. 
I think we would all agree and even can imagine how challenging hiking could be in in this mountainous setting that you're taking us into. Uh, And, of course, that ties right directly to the difficulties of life. Yes, 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 it does. Let me say first what I like about this this mysterious stranger, Michelle, is that she's not a pie-in-the-sky professor. I mean, she's into reality. She doesn't doesn't deny the uh you know the difficulties of life the challenges that we have in in one chapter she she talks about uh, uh how to solve problems it's it, it's called the problem solving pitchfork which has uh, three arms to to solving problems that we all face in life and and um, that uh, that that's an example of the practicality that that she brings and you also point out that there are glimpses of heaven along the trail or through this experience, through this journey, that we can identify with. So it's, again, the, the, how you're tying the, I guess, the physical to the spiritual? Yes, this came about because everyone has a different image of heaven. Um, and and uh, I, I was at a... A, a meeting once where we went around the table and everybody gave their thoughts on what they pictured heaven to be and it was very different from in, in each case and i concluded that people don't know a lot about heaven particularly children it's i think children don't relate very well to uh, the streets of gold and the mansions that uh, talked about in the bible so i tried to present a picture of heaven that's con- that's consistent with uh, with the bible the scriptures um but uh it it would uh be meaningful to children you know, the, you know my grandchildren and 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 so i said heaven heaven is a place and you know, michelle talks about this that's her perspective heaven is a place of um, um uh, very deep happiness um where where um uh, you, every, everybody loves you from God on down, and uh, that, that of course, is the basis for happiness. But secondly, you can, um, you can do things that you like to do on earth. One, one of the grandsons, Darby, loved, loves to fish, and so uh, Michelle told him that uh, you can go fishing in heaven, that, um, that, that um, Jesus likes to fish, you know, too. And so in that sense, I tried to you know the the book, the book gives uh, images of heaven that that are very easy to relate to uh, by children but but also I think by adults even scientists well, that would make a lot of sense to most of us uh, what would heaven be like well it would allow us to do the things that we love to do yes and that of course would will will bring happiness and that's uh, that's that's one place where we'll be really happy and of course hope a key Christian attitude, you really focus on this, especially with the challenges of life in, in these modern times. Yes, yes. I think hope is, uh, you know, um, uh, St. Paul in the Bible talks about faith, hope, and love. And um, um, I've been going to church all my life, and I hear lots of sermons on faith and lots of sermons on love and very few sermons on hope. For some reason, that that third of the big three is not talked about much and i don't i don't know why that is so but uh, i feel like there's a real shortage of hope and of course the opposite of hope is 
is feeling down or dejected or, in, in the worst case, depressed. And uh, I, I've, I've noticed that, uh, that around me a lot of people lack hope, and so I wanted to bring hope in. I think it's very important, and uh, Christians, you know, above all people, should... Um, you know, should should be optimistic, and, and you know, because uh, you know, heaven is at the end of life. But even during life, we 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 have uh, access to spiritual resources. You know, God's uh, you know the tremendous resources. You know, from from uh, from God that, uh, that are available to some degree, and we can pray. We can we can pray uh, um, anytime, anywhere about that and so that brings hope too and of course uh you know one of the issues is how you know how do you maintain hope when when you're faced with problems and challenges and that's the that's the that's one of the messages of the book you also say that one of the controversial aspects of your book is the way the mysterious stranger says some things about heaven and interprets some things that jesus said in the in the bible in an unorthodox way Yes, um, and um, that, that's kind of deliberate, I think. Uh, in, 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 uh, as a scientist, I, I, I've learned to challenge things, you know. Um, uh, if someone presents a theory, you know, scientists are supposed to challenge that and make sure it's right, and I do that every day as a scientist as, as, and as an engineer. And so um, I wanted to, you know, to try to do, to, to try to, do things like that too. So when um, uh, one of Jesus' stories is about a woman caught in adultery, and uh, and um, um, uh, it's a famous story where um, the the leading religious figures wanted to uh, kill her. Actually, that was the penalty, the accepted penalty. And Jesus said, "Let him who is without sin." cast the first stone which is uh which pointed the finger right back at them and uh, and during this uh, altercation he was writing um with his finger in the dirt and and um and the bible doesn't say what he was writing and so michelle um revealed that uh, he was writing that um you know all about sin counting but you have no no grasp of grace and of course it's it's grace that's linked with um forgiveness which is what you know what what uh, um enabled the woman to 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 not uh, to not die at the hands of the the the, the, the religious authorities when they realized that uh, that that they didn't know much about grace and they didn't know much about forgiveness and so so i so 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 i had uh, I had Michelle uh, um, g- telling us what Jesus said, you know, when, when he was well, what he wrote in the sand with his finger, which, which, as I say, is not in the Bible. And so that's an example of uh, that. The title of the book: Hiking Toward Heaven, an uplifting story of hope on Earth with hints of heaven. And the author is Ian Palmer. Ian, tell us how to get your book. Yes, there are a couple of ways. Um, it's available in uh, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and uh, Author House. Um, the website is um, hiking toward heaven dot com. www.hikingtowardheaven.com. Hiking toward heaven is one word, and and that 
gives the whole first chapter, which gives an introduction to the book. And there's lots of color pictures in that website, too. Uh, and they can even order, the people can even order the book through that website. The blog sign, I'm writing blogs uh, each week, uh, starts out the same, hiking toward heaven, one word, dot wordpress, that's one word, wordpress.com, hiking toward heaven, dot wordpress.com. Well, thank you, Ian. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guests teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Was sad because right. he had a death kill mommy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case. Nope. It wasn't his fate. No, nope. the wands never struggled to communicate. Ha. Y'all wave your hands. Look who's on. It's the code of man Keith and he's number one. It's that Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, that Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine, and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWANN.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Between Rock and a Hard Place, in defense of Rock Hudson, From the Ashes of Trial to the Light of Truth. And the author is Robert Parker Mills. And Robert joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Robert. Hello. Good to have you with us. This is going to take us back in time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the famous Rock Hudson, the movie star, and Robert's uh, unique role in his life, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to read what you have written, Robert, so everyone understands what we're going to talk about, at least in general. You say this, My book is about the grave injustice done to the late actor Rock Hudson by the court, the press, and the jury in the first 
Fear of AIDS case tried in America and how a lawyer never gave up on his client by telling the story of the trial he has tried to right a terrible wrong and restore Rock Hudson's reputation. You were there. You were his defense attorney back, what, in the late 80s? Right. How did that all occur? How did you become Rock Hudson's defense attorney in this very highly publicized trial back then? All about AIDS. Well, ironically, because everything about this whole story is his irony, I, w- I was retained by Rock Hudson's insurance company through his homeowner's policies because they did not like the representation that was being being uh, given to uh, the estate of Hudson by uh, attorneys in New York that were non-insurance related. And... Uh, so I was contacted in California by insurance, an insurance company and asked to uh, provide the defense, uh, and they were going to take the defense away from New York lawyers. Um, so uh, I got into it uh, through a homeowner's policy because at that time the argument was that these acts of, uh, of behavior occurred in Rock Hudson's house. So somehow there was a defense to be provided and that there was possibly coverage. That, that has subsequently been, the law has come out and said that that's an intentional act and that therefore there is no insurance coverage. So that would not necessarily be the case today. Now take us back, Robert, and set the stage and tell us about the role between Mark Christian and Rock Hudson. Mark Christian... Uh, there's always two stories to everything that happened in this case, but Mark Christian claims he met Rock Hudson at a uh, uh, political uh, rally for the Bottle Initiative. Uh, your guess is as good as mine as to what that was in California. All I can say is, is that Rock Hudson was apolitical, and in my opinion, there was no way that he would show up at some political convention uh, uh, discussing the Bottle Initiative which I'm sure had to do with, uh, you know, glass bottles or whatever. And, uh, and you know, once uh, they met, uh, he, his story was that Rock came up and asked him, uh, where's the booze? And that uh, they began talking, and then Christian, who claims he was uh, doing a, uh, a piece called Decades, which was... Uh, basically uh, outlining all the uh, jazz recordings uh, in history. Uh, they got to talking and then got talking about movies and then, uh, you know, that Rock Hudson uh, got his number and then about three weeks later called him and then they started going out. And they eventually evolved uh, into a uh, sexual relationship and that when Rock was in, uh, that's for an eight-month period before he moved into the house, uh, and he couldn't move into the house before that because Rock's business manager, Tom Clark, was living there, and uh, allegedly Rock didn't want Tom Clark to uh, to know that he was seeing this, this kid, Mark Christian, who wasn't a kid, he was 35 years old. But... Uh, they began having sex uh, three to five times a week, anally, 
during this eight-month period of time before he moved into Rock's house. And when Rock was in uh, in Israel filming The Ambassadors, uh, Christian showed up at Rock's door and said Rock told him he could stay there, and uh, he just basically moved in. And then when Rock got back in uh, January of 1984 from the movie, uh, about a month after that, Christian told him that he'd taken money for sex, and he didn't want Rock to hear it from his friends. And then Rock was in a dilemma because obviously he would get masculine parts, and he didn't want anybody to see him with Mark Christian because they could put two and two together, and uh, and it could ruin his reputation. So the estate's position was is that he, if he was having sex with Mark Christian before he moved into the house. He stopped having sex with him within one month after he moved into the house. And that included all the way through the time after he found out that he had AIDS. So Mark Christian's claim, his accusation against Rock Hudson was that Rock Hudson never told him that that he had HIV and thus he was uh, literally a murder attempt upon Mark Christian? The issue that was involved in the case was... Uh, Rock Hudson would would have a duty like any other sexual partner, uh, assuming he was a sexual partner, to tell him uh, once he found out that he had a diagnosis. In this case, Rock found out his diagnosis was he had full blown AIDS. We didn't, we bypassed the HIV. I mean, he was told he had full blown AIDS in June of 1984. At that point in time, he had a duty to tell Mark Christian uh, that fact. And Christian's story was that. Hudson and his uh, bookkeeper, Mark Miller, conspired not to tell Christian so Rock could continue to have high-risk anal sex with Christian for an eighth-month period of time after he found out he had AIDS until they stopped having sex uh, after, uh, oh, two or three months after Dynasty. And uh, and that, uh, that, that caused him to have a fear that he would get AIDS of which he did not have. Now, Mark Christian, well, he died uh, how long after Rock Hudson? Oh, well, this was, it just, it was, this last year was Rock's 25th anniversary of his death, and when Christian died, it was 25 years after they last had sex. So the 25-year anniversaries are essentially the same. Same. So, uh, yeah, so it it was 25 years later, and according to... uh, Christian's sister in the L.A. Times obituary, uh, he, uh, his diagnosis for the cause of death was uh, pulmonary problems from heavy smoking and that it had nothing to do with HIV or from AIDS complications. So for 25 years, he was never HIV positive, never had AIDS. Uh, my contention is that's virtually impossible if you had the kind of high-risk sex you claimed you did uh, when uh, when Rock was alive and had full-blown AIDS. And, of course, back then, you say the word AIDS, it was relatively new to the uh, to be talked about, really, right? Right. Uh, it was really, HIV as a precursor of AIDS was really only uh, discovered in 1984, and it was discovered by, uh, oh, uh, one of my doctors who, 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 
gave parallel testing to Mark Christian by the name of Jay Levy, uh, and all the all of my doctors were with the were with the National Institutes of Health, and uh, and at any rate, it was first known uh, as a, as uh, as a problem really around 1984. So the jury back then found Rock Hudson guilty. They found that. Uh, they concluded that he uh, conspired not to tell Mark Christian uh, that he had this diagnosis. I should point out that the jury was nine to three on whether Rock Hudson intentionally intended to deceive Mark Christian, which means that there were four alternative jurors of this, uh, over the twelve that were initially selected, and that. Uh, they, uh, those other four on jury interviews after the case would have voted in favor of Hudson. So I would have hung the jury, but for the luck of the draw. Well, you believe that Christian was a sociopathic liar. Yes. Um, and I say that because of the way that he basically went through this trial. Uh, he was also very manipulative. Christian and his, and then his, then lawyer Marvin Mitchelson, the famous palimony lawyer uh, that he consulted uh, after Rock had collapsed in Paris, uh, they waited until Rock died before they filed a uh, claim in probate because he thought he was going to be in Rock Hudson's will, which he wasn't, and uh, and filed this lawsuit. So what I wound up with when I finally got the case about six months before trial was uh, an empty chair, and I had no 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 source of information whatsoever on what transpired, if anything, between Rock Hudson and Mark Christian. And of course, back then, no court TV, and and uh, there was a gag order. Right, there was a gag order. There was court TV, uh, no court TV, and basically, the general public never heard the story of what transpired. Now I grew up in the Midwest uh, in Missouri, you know the Show Me State, and you know once I told all my friends about what went on in this trial, they started the very beginning urging me to write this book because that verdict never would have happened if it was in any other state other than California. So because you know the I mean jurors are are much more practical than out here. That's the best thing I can say about it, but uh, these jurors were. They were just caught up by the times, and uh, they couldn't see the forest for the trees. I've never impeached a person so much in my life, and he was never such a poor witness that I had any reason to believe that they wouldn't at least give me uh, my only defense, which was actions speak louder than words, and I proved that he was out of the country or out of the state for 80% of the time after he found out he had AIDS. And therefore, he couldn't possibly, through his actions, have had sex with Mark Christian as much uh, and, and with the same frequency as uh, Christian testified to. As a matter of fact, I started out my uh, original cross-examination because it was an equal eight-month period before he moved into Rock Hudson's house where uh, he claims he had the same amount of sex three to five times a week uh, annually. Uh, for the eight months before he moved into the house, just as he claims he continued to have after Rock supposedly didn't tell him. And uh, and um, 
eventually in my cross-examination, he acknowledged that he didn't have sex with Rock in the house. So my question was, pray tell, where did you have this sex? His answer, I don't recall. You don't recall where you had sex with the love of your life for uh, three to five times a week for an eight-month period of time before you moved into Rock Hudson's residence. Uh, no, it was in motels. Give me the name of one motel. Uh, I don't remember. How about the first motel that you had sex with the love of your life in? I don't remember. Well, how did you show up? Did Rock just drive up to a motel, and where were they? Well, they were on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, Rock drove his car. And, I, and did he check into the hotel or motel? Yes, he did. Did he sign? Uh, yes. Uh, who paid? Well, Mr. Hudson paid. Have you ever seen a receipt from any credit card that shows that Rock Hudson ever stayed in a motel up on Sunset Boulevard during this period of time? No, I haven't. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the case started. Now, if you kind of believe him on that versus disbelieve him, then uh, I'm in trouble right off the bat. Right. So you're trying to give the reader the opportunity to be the 13th juror, and, of course, with this passage of time, to hopefully see this, see this grave injustice done to the late Rock Hudson. That's, a, that's absolutely my purpose. Uh, I, I, just, I felt bad about this case from uh, the, the, uh, the day, I, the day I, I tried it until the day I wrote the book, because I just felt that there was a terrible injustice done and I just wouldn't feel well just going, going out on my legal career uh, and, uh, and not writing this wrong. Robert Parker Mills, he's the author of Between Rock and a Hard Place, In Defense of Rock Hudson, From the Ashes of Trial to the Light of Truth. Robert, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, uh, well, the, the best place to get it is to go through uh, authorhouse.com. It's print-on-demand, and you go into authorhouse.com, click on bookstore, and then type in either Between Rock and a Hard Place or my name, Robert Parker Mills, and uh, you can order it uh, right there. Robert, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to, to get the story out. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown. 
So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The 2012 Black Hole Killer, and the author, Arthur T. White, and Arthur joins us now on Author House. Hello, Arthur. Hi. Good morning. Good to have you with us. This is going to be a wild ride for everyone because we're talking about a murder mystery, a sci-fi fantasy, and thrown in the mix of it, social satire. So so we'll explain all what that means in detail, but I want to read a couple things you've written just to kind of set the stage uh, in general about what we're going to talk about. You say, this book is a combination of Wall Street the Bonfires of the Vanities, The Da Vinci Code, and 2012. You also say that the 2012 Black Hole Killer tells a story of layers. There's a mystery centering on a serial killer and a mirrored frozen body floating in midair. Further, there's a 21st century morality tale in the style of Dante's Inferno. And, of course, we throw in, you know, Black Holes, Wall Street, the universe is collapsing, the bubbles, time will not expand forever. I mean, my goodness, Arthur, how did you put all this together? Why you, why write this kind of a story? I did it because it was a challenge to create what in physics is called a theory of everything. <laughs> it was, everything's in there, that's for sure. <laughs> and And one of the things that inspired it actually was that I was diagnosed as having a brain tumor, which was the size of a golf ball, which fortunately was benign. But when I found out that I had this, the first thing I did was see the movie um, The Bucket List. And writing this book was on my bucket list, along with going to the Super Bowl if the Giants won the, um, the playoffs, and they did, and I did. I was so high that the only thing I saw was the last pass of the game when the Giants won. Um, And then when I got out of the hospital after having nearly died three times, it's one of those moments in life when it's now or never, and I decided that it was now. So that's really what what triggered my writing the book. Tell us about the title of the book, The 2012 Black Hole Killer. Okay. So here's what happened. The best way to understand it is that for many, many years, because I'm in the generation of people who grew up in the baby boom after the Russians won Sputnik, and if I remember right, our response vanguard crashed, that I was told it was my patriotic duty to immerse myself in science and become an astrophysicist or an astronaut or something of that ilk. And I became quite interested in notions of time. Um, Also, back then, I was very religious and and had thought of entering 
a religious profession, so I was also interested in notions of religion, and my grandfather, whom I loved dearly, died in my arms when I was only eight, and I became very interested in notions of immortality. As time went on, I used, I traveled a lot, because my view of life has been to be collecting experiences, not things, sort of what Alvin Toffler wrote about as a second wave. So I traveled a lot, hitchhiked all over Europe and, and worked on ships and, and managed at one point to make my way to India and, and to Africa, where some of the book is located, and I was always fascinated by different cultural perspectives on time, on immortality, and so on. Um, as the years then went on, um, in terms of my own profession, I, I um, have practiced as a psychiatrist, which is why one of the heroes of the book of the psychiatrist, by the way, and one of the reasons this book needs to be anonymous, because I still see patients, and I don't want them to see how crazy I really am with my <laughs> fantasy life. But I had a lot of patients who were Wall Streeters. I had friends who were Wall Streeters. I had neighbors who were Wall Streeters. I was basically surrounded by them and learned a lot about the good and the bad and the ugly of Wall Street life, including all the machinations. For those of you in the audience who ever saw the show about Enron, the smartest guys in the room will appreciate this, about how a lot of Wall Street has made a lot of money by hiding, obfuscating, and literally disappearing things off the books and to the point that it occurred to me that there was an analogy between the black holes of astronomy and financial black holes with all these companies created. And furthermore, that the analogy and the metaphor worked two ways. Since with the dot-com and even going back to the Hunt Silver uh, monopoly attempt, going on today to what the People's Republic of China is trying to do with rare earths, and everything in between, that there's ample precedent, precedent in financial circles if you have an ever-expanding bubble of greed, like Mador's Ponzi scheme, for example, it collapses. And so I reasoned on the other side, what about the universe? And maybe the universe, instead of expanding forever, faster and faster, which is what some people believe, reaches a point like a balloon and it pops and collapses. And then what happens? Then what happens is we have another big bang, and then what happens to time, then maybe time repeats. And you and I have had this conversation 28 billion years or so ago, which finally led me to think about the Hindu religion, because in the Hindu religion, there are endless cycles of birth, death, etc., which led me to investigate more when I was in India the uh, Hindu gods and goddesses, and ultimately that led me to learn a lot about the historic conflict between the Hindus and the Muslims, which is very timely today. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, obviously a complex and exciting and challenging storyline. Let's talk about some of the main characters, uh, both for good and for evil. Uh, give us some view of, like, the main character or characters. Okay, the main character in the book really is the one pictured on the cover, which is a Hindu goddess, Kali, 
for those of you who may remember, if I remember, I, it was one of the Beatles movies. It may have been Help when she got introduced into the popular culture as the evil one because the thuggies, who were her followers, and that created the name thug in our language, by the way, were um, prominent in that movie. And then that she was reinvented and reappeared periodically in movies. She was in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as the goddess worshipped by Captain Nemo on the Nautilus in that movie, the one with Sean Connery and some other folks. And then she reappeared again as Kali Ma in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. However, left out of all of these movies was the fact that in Hindi, Hindu theology, she really is a mother as well as a destroyer, as is her consort, Shiva. And the book then focuses on an avatar of Shiva, who, given my own background, not surprisingly, is a psychiatrist. <laughs> and, and, and then the other characters are part of the teams of people who line up on either side. The other, really, probably the third main character is the chairman of a company that's called the Weather Derivatives Company. They, that um, His name is Billy Wingard, and that name was chosen advisory because he and Callie hook up to uh, create a company that Profits from natural disasters that Callie herself causes because of her gravitational powers. She herself is born from the original singularity that created the universe and is the grandmother of all black holes in the universe. So she has the power to mess up the sun cycles and so on. And so she's the one who's caused every natural disaster we've had in the, since 1977, including Mount St. Helens, the tsunami that we had, the Japanese earthquake we just had, and then this cynical fellow Wingard makes money by betting on the reconstruction efforts and betting that commodity prices will be driven up by the disasters and so on. And then together they need to raise $1 trillion to build the larger Hadron Collider, which is under Mount K2 in the Himalayas, um, with which she hopes to um, do something to the universe on December 21, 2012, which is where that comes from. The killer part of the title is that having the powers of a black hole, she kills people who get in her way like a vampire, but instead of sucking your blood, she sucks up all your body heat and turns you into absolute zero, the coldest temperature possible in the universe, which is why the first scene in the yeah, book is right, of a right, frozen right. floating body in the hottest day of the year. Well, that really uh, grabs your attention right away, and you're going, oh, this is going to be different. This is going <laughs> to be really different. Boy, you must have researched a lot. It's been my hobby for, I hate to tell you, but basically since 1977 when I did my own residency, I've had these hobbies of cosmology, religion, and and then as time went on, I, it, it struck me the similarities between the astronomical and financial black holes, and I just started collecting stuff like a hobby. I literally have boxes of things and, and read a lot, and again, it was only after 
I had to go into the hospital that I realized that it was time to try to put all this together because, honestly, I didn't know if the tumor was going to come back and kill me. Well, as we look at 2012, there's obvious a, a belief by many that 2012 is going to be the end of the world. That's right. And so I feel some time pressure to get this book out so at least I could have some readers before the universe ends. <laughs> Well, Robert Newcomb, author of The Chronicles of Blood, uh, he says this, This breathtaking, brilliant, amazingly suspenseful, yet thought-provoking work consumes you as completely as its black holes. I've never read anything that has so instantly captured then stretched my imagination. Well, that sums up the 2012 black hole killer. Well, I, thank, I thanked him for that review. Uh, his books are terrific, by the way. The, uh, I read his books, too. That's actually ultimately how I ended up having the chance to meet him. And, um, and you know, I'm very grateful that he lied so much about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said it very well. He, you know, he put those lies very, uh, formed them very carefully. Uh, you know, as you look at, obviously, the world today, you look at the financial community, you look at all the news, you look at all the gloom and doom by some, and, you know, the, the economy is turning around by others, and, of course, Wall Street, the bubbles, everything that is going on. It seems to be very timely to have your book come out. Well, I hope so. It was, it's interesting because... One of the funny coincidences in the book is in the Hindu religion, the the uh, years of time are divided up into yugas, Y-U-G-A-S. And with this, if I recall, there are four of them. And we are actually at the end of the Kali Yuga, the same name as the person who's the key figure in the book. And the basic thrust of it is that as we progress from one yuga to the next, the the proportion of good to evil reverses, so that we're really, according to, anyway, this interpretation of Hindu theology, we're in the era of increasingly accelerating corruption, and so the end of the the universe, many Hindus believe, isn't the end of everything. It's actually the era of cleansing and rebirth, and we have another first yuga again. So who knows? Maybe we'll be reincarnated rather than obliterated, after December 21, 2012. Although, if you read the book, all I will tell you is it ain't necessarily so, and you won't <laughs> find out until you read the last page why or why not that's the case. And you see a possible series here. You even see possible video games. Well, maybe. It's like the whole fun of these things, and I did this because I enjoyed it. And frankly, my audience that I targeted was one, my wife, who really literally saved my life when I had the brain tumor. And that's why the book is, you know, really dedicated to her. And she liked it. The kids liked it. A couple of my friends liked it. Everything else is fun because it's achieved already, in my mind, the purpose. And the only thing, the only two things in my life which will guarantee my immortality. Now the book will be in the Library of Congress somewhere in perpetuity, <laughs> hidden along with the where, where, where um, 
the the Masons have the hidden treasure <laughs> who watches Nicholas Cage thing. Yes. And the only other thing that will be immortal to me are the parking meters I put up erroneously <laughs> when I was 17 working for the New York City Traffic Department because the distances I put them up were so crazy that they were not taken down because now some are so big an SUV fits in and so little now a Mini Cooper. And of course so you etched your name. You etched your things. name on each one of them too, didn't you? No, I said you etched your name into each one of them, oh, too. Oh, boy, I was eye tempted. <laughs> That's <tempted>. right. <laughs> well, author, tell us how to get your book. Well, Author House is an author's cooperative type of self-publishing enterprise, and, and they're the ones who will have a website, and they're available on the Internet, and I'm going to have a... Um, I guess you'd call it a blog. I'm also going to have a blog that's being set up on GoDaddy.com and the Black Hole Killer and the Black Hole Killer. So, and and both, all of those will have information. Uh, the book itself is in the final stages of being um, reviewed for publication, for you know, editing and so on so that the book itself ideally will be available for purchase in about two weeks from now. And then the easiest way is just go to authorhouse.com and, uh, and search for the 2012 Black Hole Killer, and it will have instructions as to how to get it. It will be sold on ebook form in places like Amazon. The price is going to be for the ebook version, four ninety five. So it's a deal of the century. So the motto should be food or thought. For the price of a slice of pizza, you can give it up and stimulate your brain. There you go. That's certainly <laughs> stimulation for the brain, that's for sure. Well, Arthur, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Arthur T. White, the author of his book, The 2012 Black Hole Killer.